This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. It is six minutes past nine o'clock here in Hayesville, North Carolina. Welcome to a Monday morning wake-up call on Sports Country Radio, the third day of April 2023. It's going to be a rainy one down here in the uh, southeast. Uh, The good news is uh, no severe weather today, but boy, I'll tell you what, uh, this area has been getting hit hard. Georgia, Tennessee, Mississippi, Louisiana, tornadoes everywhere. Um, anybody tell you what folks, you know, you want to, you, uh, you, uh, uh, climate, uh, deniers, climate change deniers. I don't know how you can, how you can deny what's going on now. I mean, look what's going on. They're, they're talking about feet of snow in April, uh, in parts of, uh, the upper Midwest and, uh, and the Western in the Rockies, uh, just, you know, and, and all the, extra, the tornadoes we've been having and at times of the year that you don't often have them. Just nuts. Just nuts. But uh, anyway, what a wild sports weekend we had. Of course, baseball in full swing. The NCAA tournament's going on. The women's tournament finishing up last night. The men's final four tonight in Dallas. Uh, UConn will take on San Diego State. Uh, so obviously, uh, being a Connecticut native, that is going to be a big one for me. I I am looking forward to that. UConn has been dominant. So, uh, but we'll talk about all that in a minute. Uh, well, let's start with the uh, uh, <laughs> the spectacle that I watched a, a little bit yesterday before the baseball game started. I saw this was going to be on, and I was like, "Yeah, this is just stupid." And but I watched it. Um, and I'm old, I suppose. Maybe I should be in on this, but. Uh, the craze sweeping the country for people, especially older people, pickleball. Has it? I don't know how many of you have played pickleball. I haven't, other than knowing it's kind of a um, a smaller version of of tennis, and it's played kind of almost with a a wiffle ball type thing and smaller rackets and all that kind of. But it they had this thing they called the pickleball slam this weekend, and it was basically a celebrity tournament with Andy Roddick, John McEnroe, Andre Agassi, and Michael Chang. And I was like, ah, you know, what, you know, just a made-for-TV stupid thing. I got to tell you what, I watched, I watched a half an hour of it. I watched the uh, McEnroe took on Andre Agassi. Ma- John McEnroe, by the way, folks, is sixty-four years old. Andre Agassi's fifty-two. McEnroe beat Agassi. But what amazed me about this sport, and, and I will, you know, I'm I'm not running out to play it, but um, it take there's a lot more athleticism in it than I expected. It's a lot of play at the net. It's very quick. Um, you know, it's uh, it's be- much better for older people. You don't have to run as much. But it was hard. And I'm watching John McEnroe at 64 up at the net. And, you know, Agassi getting these shots over. And he's just like, it's almost like table tennis when you get up at the net like that and just seeing who can get one by the other guy. It was it was entertaining. I will say that. You know, I, it's not something I'm going to be watching on a regular basis. But I can see the attraction, I think, 
to the sport for folks who are older. Look, when I was younger, I played tennis all the time. At one point, I was a eh, a decent B player, if I'm being generous with myself. But when I worked overseas, I worked in Saudi Arabia, and there wasn't much else to do in Saudi Arabia in my off time. So I played a lot of tennis. I played tennis every day. And uh, and I played it up into my, my 30s and, and uh, then decided that my knees and ankles didn't like it too much. But I can see the attraction. So it was kind of interesting. It was on ESPN. Uh, you know, so it was fun. It was fun. I can see why people enjoy it. All right, let's uh, – Let's get to the women's basketball tournament this weekend. LSU beats Iowa last night in kind of a, uh, I don't want to say anticlimactic game, but uh, LSU just destroyed Iowa last night. 102 to 85. They set a record for the most points in a championship game. Kim Mulkey brings the first basketball title to LSU, men or women, in its school history. And when we talk about great coaches, not just men's coaches, but coaches, period, Kim Mulkey's name has got to be there. You know, Gino Auriemma, kind of the gold standard, right? Vivian Stringer at Rutgers and uh, Dawn Staley at South Carolina. And, you know, there's, there's others, obviously. But, you know, those are, for women's basketball especially, those are the ones that kind of jump to mind. Well, Kim Mulkey, folks, has now won five or four titles. She won three at Baylor and now becomes the first coach in women's basketball to win a national title at two different schools. This LSU team won nine games two years ago, and now they are the national champions. And say what you want about some of the stuff that happened in this game. And, and I, I took issue with the way the referees called this game. I thought it was uh, – I thought the foul calls were excessive. I, I don't think – I don't think you can argue that. I really don't. I mean, I thought that the referees played too much of a factor in this game. I thought some of the stuff they did late, especially the technical foul they called on Caitlin Clark late in the game. Now, the game was essentially over by that point, I think. But you don't insert yourself and, and, you know, all she did was throw the, you know, kind of like the ball was bouncing on the floor. And instead of picking it up and throwing it to one of the referees, she just kind of swatted at it and it went to the side. It wasn't like trying to show the referee up or anything like that. Um, At least I didn't think so. And they called a technical foul on her, which meant that she then had to play uh, the last part of this game, the, la- the final you know six, seven minutes with four fouls because a technical foul also counts as a personal foul. But the referees called 37 fouls in this game, 37. So I thought that was a little much. Just that's, you know, in my opinion. But having said that, you have got to take your hat off to what LSU did. And this takes nothing away from Iowa. What a great season Iowa had. And the game of the tournament, What? No, I don't care who won the game last night. The game of this tournament was that semifinal game between Iowa 
and South Carolina. South Carolina undefeated this season, hadn't lost in 42 games. They hadn't lost since like March 6th or something of the previous year. Some ridiculous, like 389 days or something since their last loss. And Caitlin Clark just took that game over. And she was incredible. 41 points in that game. The highest scoring NCAA tournament final in history. And some of the threes that she hits, she has no conscience. She doesn't care where she is. She just lets it fly, and they continue to fall. It was amazing. Um, and look, uh, the problem that I had with, with the way uh, after the game was over and South Carolina loses this game, we get into the post-game press conference, and Don Staley immediately starts whining about the way her team is portrayed. And she took exception to comments that were made by Iowa coach Lisa Bluter and where she said to her girls going into this game that rebounding against South Carolina was going to be like, quote, going to a bar fight. And Dawn Staley looked at that at the end of the game after they lost, and she said she was going to to say this anyway, whether they won or lost. But she said, we're not bar fighters. We're not thugs. We're not monkeys. We're not street fighters. She took the comments by Lisa Bluter and then proceeded to turn the post-game press conference into a rant at Bluter and at the media, basically saying, uh, turning it into almost a racist incident. And is it because the South Carolina team is all black and the Iowa team is all white? No, I think it's a product of what's going on in this country right now. And and I think and I get I get Don Staley's desire to defend her team, but there is no argument that her team plays exceptionally hard. You could make the case that there are times that her team plays. I don't want to say dirty, but plays too aggressively. Which is what leads to the kinds of comments that happen. And Lisa Bluter said, look, there was absolutely no ill intent when I said that to my team. She said, look, I know coaches will take things and spin it and try to motivate their team. And she said, I've done it. I'm sure I have. But I really meant it as a compliment that you're going to have to fight harder than you've ever fought in your life to get a defensive rebound against this team because they're so good. That's what my intent was. And I 150% believe her. And the game, by the way, the way the game went, it was played out that she was 150% correct. The way South Carolina 
rebounded the basketball was amazing in that game. Absolutely amazing. Um, I mean to tell you that if they hadn't rebounded as well as they had, they would have gotten blown out in that game. But they were all over the offensive glass. 26 offensive rebounds. They out-rebounded Iowa in this game 49-25. to I repeat, 49-25. to South Carolina had more offensive rebounds than defensive rebounds. So what Lisa Bluter was telling her team was 100% correct. You know, and so this wasn't anything racist. In ter- you know, the Iowa coach meant nothing racist by this. Now, you know, she says, well, you know, I hear the media whispering things, you know, uh, you know, obviously, you know, nobody's writing them. She said, but I hear you guys whispering. I hear when you think nobody's looking. I hear what you say. Why isn't it okay to say that you think a team plays dirty or plays overly aggressive or whatever without it turning into something racial? And look, Dawn Staley admitted. She said, look, that's the way we play the game. You may not like it, but that's how we play it. And that's the way I coach. I'm not changing. We found success. So what she's basically saying is, yes, we do play hard. Yes, we do play borderline at times, but get over it because that's the way we're going to keep playing. So why isn't it okay for people to say that? Why can't you just say, you know, this is what it is. This is the way you play. And the referees let him get away with it. She did the same thing Staley did earlier in the season when UConn damn near beat them. After the game, Gino Auriemma said, it's just appalling what teams do to lose Lopez Seneschal. He said, you know, because after the game, when he looked at her, she had bruises all over her body from what happened in that South Carolina game. And he said, it's not basketball anymore. I don't know what it is, but it's not basketball. And right after that, Dawn Staley went off and then went after Gino. And she said, um, we've been called so many things, I'm sick of it. And she can say, I'm sick of it because I coach some of the best human beings the game has ever had. Well, that whatever. But at the end of the day, if you even if they're great human beings, if you teach them to play like junkyard dogs and they are overly aggressive and they are out there literally beating on people, why isn't it okay for somebody to call you out on that? I don't get it. I don't get it. Now, having said that, that was an unbelievable game. And I honestly thought South Carolina was going to win that game. I did. But I underestimated how good Caitlin Clark really is. I, you know, look, living out here on the East Coast, we don't get to, you know, I don't, I don't watch a lot of women's basketball to begin with. And I think I'd only seen Caitlin Clark play once all year prior to the NCAA tournament. She is a special player. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about that. And, uh, you know, the problem is, is that LSU in the game last night just had too much. They have a great team. Caitlin Clark has to carry her team more often than not. 
And then when you get in foul trouble the way that Iowa did last night, they really had no recourse. They were screwed. You know, when uh, when it got into the fourth quarter and Caitlin Clark and your two seniors all have four fouls and basically have to play with one hand tied behind their back because they're afraid of fouling out of the game, you know, any chance you had at a comeback is over. You know, McKenna Warnock and uh, Monica Cezano, uh, uh, Cezano were both very good players, very hard-nosed players, but, you know, they have to play against the big players on LSU. They have to bang underneath. And if you're playing with four fouls, you can't. Because you also know at the same time that Iowa is not deep enough for them to foul out of the game and for Iowa to be able to stay in that game. Now, this game, you could make the case that this game was over at halftime. LSU scored 59 points in the first half. 59! It's a a record, by the way. You know, so you could make the case that this thing was over by then. But Iowa didn't go away. They got it back to single digits with a minute left in the third quarter. I think they got it back to seven at one point in the fourth quarter. But then when the fouls caught up to them, there was nothing left to do. There was nothing left they could do. Um, And one other sportsmanship note, if you want to call it that, at the end of the game, and I take exception to this, Angel Reese uh, made a point of trying to show up Caitlin Clark last night when the game was over, waving her hand in front of her, that gesture that John Cena started, like, uh, you can't see me or whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. Um, and, you know, pointing at her ring finger and all this. Caitlin Clark never tried to show anybody up. Now, I did come to find out later that Caitlin Clark had made the same gesture in a game at Louisville, but she never did it at anybody. She just kind of did it. You know, and she, you know, she likes to throw up, you know, put up the, the three fingers when she hits a three, and you know, that's fine. She's not trying to show anybody up. But when you're Angel Reese and you go right up in the grill of, of a player and start making gestures like that and pointing at your ring finger and showing them up, there's no reason for that. It's classless. And Reese was unapologetic. You know, she's, uh, she's called the Bayou Barbie because she is a trash talker. And, you know, and she just keeps and, – and afterwards she said, look, she said, I don't fit into a box that you guys want me to be in. I'm too hood. I'm too ghetto. But when other people do it, y'all say nothing. Uh, so this is for girls that look like me that's going to speak up for what they believe in. It's unapologetically – well, whatever. What it means is you unapologetically have no class. Because at the end of the day, LSU kicked the crap out of Iowa last night. And you know what you should do? You should enjoy it. And you should have some class, and you should act like it was business as usual. It's one of the reasons why I don't like these massive celebrations and showing up and bat flips and all that stuff in baseball now. And people say, ah, you know, we should be able to show our – there's one thing about showing excitement and jubilation, and, you know, it's another to show up somebody face-to-face. Now, Caitlin Clark ignored her. You know, she didn't look at her. She knew what was going on. She saw her out of the corner of her eye. There's no question about it. But she just walked away. You know, but have some class. And, you know, and if you're Kim Mulkey, 
And I hope she did this. I don't know that she did. But I hope if you're Kim Mulkey after the game, you go to your girls and say, hey, you know, now when we do this again next year, let's act like we've been there before. Because let's be honest, LSU hadn't been there before. But there's no reason to act like that. None. And, you know, she Angel Reese can try to defend this as much as she wants. But to me, it was just a classless gesture. So... And as I said, the UConn men tonight, 920, can't wait. San Diego State, the number five seed, will take on UConn. And what a great finish. Talk about uh, talk about great games. We talked about that Iowa-South uh, Carolina game. How about the stunner with San Diego State? They were getting hammered in that game by Florida Atlantic. They were down 14. And then Lamont Butler hits a shot at the buzzer. And the five-seeded San Diego State Aztecs come back to beat Florida Atlantic and get to the championship game. Oh, my God, what a great finish. Um, so now UConn will take them on after wiping out Miami, and UConn just continue to roll through this tournament. They beat Miami by 13. They've won all five games in this tournament by double digits. And it's led its opponent by 20 points in every game. Every game. They're seven-and-a-half-point favorites tonight. Everybody thinks they're going to win this game, which scares the crap out of me. I think they're going to win this game, which should also scare the crap out of me. Um, but, you know, the one thing, I've watched almost every UConn game this year, and one thing that scares me is they've played so well. You're, it's almost like you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And UConn has the propensity to get careless with the basketball. They had 15 turnovers against Miami, you know, which allowed Miami to kind of get back in the game. UConn was up 20, and then all of a sudden they start playing lackadaisical, and before you know it, it's an eight-point game. And we saw that in the regular season time and time again where they'd get a lead They'd get careless with the basketball. They'd turn it over. The other team would come back and beat them. We, so I think I saw that happen three times in Big East play this year. And this San Diego State team is one of the best defensive teams in the country. They want to play this game in the 60s. They want this to be a, uh, you know, a low-scoring game. They don't score a lot. They're ranked 68th offensively, but they are a very good defensive team. So UConn's got their hands full. There's no question about it. But I think I still think they win the game. I think Adama Sonogo is going to be too much for them to handle inside. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing that is going to help them is Jordan Hawkins will be healthy. Jordan Hawkins um, was sick in the game against Miami. Only played 26 minutes. He had 13 points. He had food poisoning. Come to find out, he, he thinks it was the calamari he ate at the steakhouse that he's never eating it again. Um, but he played, but he wasn't right. If he's, you know, if he's a hundred percent, and the way Tristan Newton's been playing, and guys like Donovan Klingen off the bench, what a what a great weapon for UConn to have coming off the bench when Sonogo needs a rest to have a you know a guy that's over seven feet tall coming in to uh, to fill in, and at times they have them both on the floor at the same time. I think UConn wins this game by a dozen tonight. Oh, at least I hope they do. Uh, and uh, it would be the fifth 
national championship for UConn. And all five of those championships, by the way, have come since 1999. That would move them uh, fourth all-time behind just UCLA and Kentucky and tie them with Duke and Indiana. And it would also mean that no team has won more NCAA titles this century than UConn if they win it. So anybody who wants to say that there's no there's no blue bloods and there's no great basketball teams in the uh, in the Final Four this year, UConn's already won four national championships since 1999. How does that and it's 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 better than anybody else. How does that not qualify them as being one of the best teams in college basketball and one of the best programs um, in recent history? You know, that's just snobbishness. 30 minutes past the hour, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, it's time to talk baseball. You're listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It is 32 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to The Wake Up Call here on a Monday morning. And uh, when we were last here on Friday, of course, uh, I was bemoaning opening day for the Boston Red Sox where it was uh, embarrassing. And, you know, they, they made a late charge to come back and try to make it interesting. And, I, you know, as I said, you know, too much is made of opening day. Well, it turns out that uh, the Red Sox turned it around, sort of. I mean, the Red Sox win two out of three in the series. They beat the Baltimore Orioles uh, both games this weekend. Uh, they win yesterday's game 9-5 to five over the Orioles. But, uh, and there's always a but with the Red Sox, isn't there? Um, but if you are a Sox fan, you are concerned as hell about the state of the pitching for this team right now. After the disastrous start for Corby, Corey Kluber on opening day, we didn't think it could get worse until Chris Sale took the mound on Saturday. Chris Sale making his first appearance on the mound at Fenway Park in almost 18 months this is a guy that all through spring training uh, was was happy and and relaxed and you know seemed thrilled to be back and couldn't wait to get on the mound and goes three and a third innings and gives up seven runs. It was brutal. I mean, it's like here we go again. I mean, the good news on Saturday's game is at least the bullpen pitched well, which they didn't do in the opening day. Um, but seven runs, seven hits, two walks in three innings. Now, he did have six strikeouts. He struck out the side in the first inning, but he gave up two bombs. He ended up giving up three home runs in the game. If you want to look at the positive side of it for Chris Sale, his velocity was there. He topped off at 97 miles an hour. You know, the problem is I, I think some of it was pitch selection. He didn't believe in his slider and got burned on his fastball. So, again, I mean, he got swings and misses. His changeup looked pretty good. So, you know, his stuff looked like it was okay, but his execution was off. And again, I'm sure there was, uh, uh, you know, some of this was uh, adrenaline amped up, you know, whatever you want to call it, because he hadn't pitched at Fenway for so long, wanting to bounce back from that awful opening day game. I get all that. Um, and then the Red Sox got a gift. 
as bad as he was, Boston still manages to win that game, and this was unbelievable. Uh, two outs in the ninth inning, right? The Sox are down a run, 8-7. Little pop-up hit by Masa Yoshida, and then Ryan McKenna, who came into the game as a defensive replacement, a guy who's supposed to be a better defensive player, drops a fly ball. Drops the fly ball to bring up Adam Duvall. And as if he was Kreskin, uh, Kevin Euclid, the color commentator for uh, the prime color commentator for Nesson this season, says to Dave O'Brien, well, wouldn't it be something if Duvall hit one out here? Well, how about that? Adam Duvall does. Sticks it up into the left field uh, netting, and the Red Sox pull out the victory 9-8, to a game they had no business winning. Uh, and Chris Sale is off the hook, and Chris Sale can turn the page, and hopefully that will be the last stinker we've seen of him this year. Look, he has had a history. You know, it's not like he has never given up a bunch of runs in a game. He's given up seven runs in a game a few times in his career. The question now is going to be how quickly he bounces back and and does this. You would think at 34 years of age and having been around the block as often as he had, he's going to be able to shake that off and make the adjustments he needs to make. But so now the Red Sox go into Sunday, and they're one and one, and you're like, "Wow, it's it's Christmas." Well, they go into yesterday's game, and Tanner Houck gets the start, and Tanner Houck for the first four innings looks unbelievable. Four shutout innings. The Red Sox get single runs in the first, second, and third. And then Tanner Houck proceeds to give up two home runs in the fifth inning. And now all of a sudden, we go to the bottom of the fifth, and the game is tied, and you're like, oh, no, here we go again. But Boston bounced back right away. They get three runs in the bottom of the inning, and the Red Sox go on to win this one 9-5. to Um and Adam Duval, who hit that home run on Saturday, has had one hell of an introduction to Boston Red Sox fans. He is eight for his first 14, three doubles, a triple, two home runs, and eight runs batted in in three games. Welcome to Boston. Kike Hernandez with two home runs over the weekend. Um, Masa Yoshida, who has not exactly torn the cover off the ball, has had some timely hits. He's stolen a base. Uh, he's looked pretty good. Alex Verdugo is swinging the bat pretty well. Rafi Devers is 7 for 15 to start the season, and it's like Pete Abraham called it a quiet 7 for 15, and he's right because he hasn't been hitting bombs, and you know it's but he's been getting on base. So I don't think the Red Sox won a, a series in the American League East last year until like June or July, right? Well, they get off the schneid right off the bat. They take two out of three, and, man, talk about breathing a sigh of relief. And now the Red Sox go from that to getting a break. They get to play the Pittsburgh Pirates. And the Pittsburgh Pirates just came off losing two out of three to the Cincinnati Reds, who I think the Reds and the Pirates are going to battle it out for who's the worst team in baseball this year. And the Red Sox get a get an opportunity here to maybe make some hay. The early season schedule for the Red Sox is pretty good. 
Uh, Cutter Crawford is going to get the start for the Red Sox tonight. They had no intention of him being in the starting rotation, but with Bayo down and Paxton down, uh, and the fact that he pitched very well in spring training, he made four starts, pitched 18 innings, and, and looked pretty good. Uh, his velocity was good. Um, so he will get the start against the Pirates. But when you look at this schedule, I mean, they've got Detroit coming up, right? They've got the Angels coming up. And I know they have Otani and Mike Trout, but, you know, that's not a team that, you know, strikes fear into the hearts of men by and large. The Red Sox have an opportunity uh, before they have to go play Tampa to make some hay here and to build up some uh, – uh, confidence, I guess. The other good news, they found out yesterday that uh, Trevor Story is only two weeks away from starting to throw as he recovers from elbow surgery, and uh, he's going to start swinging a bat probably in about a month. They think that he is going to be ready to go before the All-Star break, which would be a huge boon for the Red Sox. You know, And then they'll have a decision to make. They'll have almost an embarrassment of riches because if that – happens and he can play shortstop, that means that uh, they can then move Kike Hernandez back to center field. Of course, then what do you do with Adam Duvall? Well, you say, well, put him at DH. The problem is you got Justin Turner at DH. So it's, you know, but that's going to be a good problem for the Red Sox to have. That was actually uh, very positive news. Uh, elsewhere around the American League East yesterday, the New York Yankees win. Uh, they take two out of three in their series from the Giants. They shut out the Giants yesterday. Uh, six nothing, and the story of this game was Johnny Brito made his major league debut for the Yankees and was really really good. Five innings, just two hits. He struck out six, walked one. Bullpen did a great job. Um, and then it was the bats. Um, Aaron Judge hit his second home run of the season, but the home run that everybody is talking about is one Giancarlo Stanton hit yesterday. He hit one to center field that was an absolute missile. I mean, 485 feet to straightaway center field. It went over the restaurant windows above Monument Park down there. It landed on a walkway in front of a bar. I mean, it, <laughs> it went 118 miles an hour off the bat. I'm not, you know, exit velocity, I don't get too care. This ball, I'm, I guarantee you, this ball has a flat spot on it. He hit this thing so hard. It was the second longest home run uh, since StatCast began uh, tracking them. Uh, the the longest one was 504 feet, and that was hit in the uh, the thin air in Colorado. And it's the third longest uh, home run at Yankee Stadium, uh, behind two homers by Aaron Judge in 2017 that went uh, over 490 feet. But, man, what a bomb. So now the Yankees, after winning two out of three, get to take on the Philadelphia Phillies. The Phillies, whew, what an awful weekend they had. Um, Toronto. Loses yesterday to the St. Louis Cardinals uh, by a final of 9-4. to four. So Toronto does not get off to a good start. They are 1-2 and two in their opening weekend against St. Louis. Uh, if you are a Toronto fan, you've got to be a little bit concerned about that starting rotation, much like Boston. Uh, their big free agent signing for pitching this year, they signed Chris Bassett away from the New York Mets. Well, Bassett yesterday went three and a third innings and gave up ten hits and nine runs. Ouch. 
He gave up four home runs in this game. Three homers on his first 14 pitches. He's making $21 million a year. (laughs) Ouch. Uh, So uh, Toronto loses two out of three. They go now to take on the Kansas City Royals in Kansas City. Jose Barrios will get the start for the Blue Jays tonight. And if you're the Cardinals, um, you stay at home and you get to face the Atlanta Braves. Um, And uh, it'll be uh, Jake Woodford who was 4-0 with a 2-2-3 ERA last year, will take on Charlie Morton in the first of a three-game series in that one coming up tonight. Um, mention the Braves. The Braves lose yesterday to the Washington Nationals. Um, bit of a surprise there. Uh but the Braves take two out of three in the series. The Nationals get a great start from Mackenzie Gore. Mackenzie Gore was one of the key pieces that came over to the Nationals when they traded Juan Soto to the San Diego Padres. Uh, Gore is a kid that was the number three overall pick back in 2017. He's only 24 years old. Didn't allow a hit until there were two outs in the fourth inning. Uh, looked really, really good. And if you're Atlanta, you were throwing out Jared Schuster yesterday, who was a first-round pick in the 2020 draft, making his major league debut. Picked, he pitched unbelievably in, in spring training, uh, but he got roughed up a bit yesterday, and the Braves fall to the Washington Nationals. Uh, and I almost forgot the uh, Tampa Bay Rays. They win again, 5-1. They start the season 3-0 and as they sweep the Tigers. Uh, but Jeffrey Springs, the story in this one. Springs goes six shutout innings. For Tampa. Uh, Springs, by the way, former Red Sox property. Uh, struck out 12 in six innings. Only walked one through 81 pitches after six. They lifted them. Uh, and then they had three relievers ended up giving up a couple of hits in this one, but uh, uh, including a, a runoff of Jalen Beeks in the ninth inning. But Tampa stays undefeated on the new season. They win this one by a final of 5-1. to one. It is 46 minutes past. Yeah, we're going to take another break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It is 48 minutes past the hour. You're listening to the wake-up call here on a Monday morning. Uh, I mentioned the Philadelphia Phillies. The Philadelphia Phillies have started the season 0-3. The defending National League champs get swept by the Texas Rangers over the weekend. The good news is, I guess, for the the Phillies is you made some progress yesterday. They lose last night uh, to Texas 2-1. Uh, which is much better than the 11-7 and 16-3 beatdowns that they took in the first two games. But if you thank the, the the saving grace for the Phillies is that these games were in Arlington, Texas, and not in Philadelphia. Can you imagine how the Philly fans would have reacted <laughs> to, to what happened this weekend to their pitching uh, when uh, Wheeler? And Nola got absolutely blasted. Uh, look, give Bailey Falter a lot of credit yesterday. Went out there and pitched fairly well uh, for his team. Went five and a third, only gave up two runs and seven hits. Uh, struck out three, didn't walk anybody. But the guy that's amazing to me, Martin Perez. This is a guy that was with the Red Sox. And, and look, God love him. When he was with the Red Sox, he was a guy that would take the ball every fifth day and he would go out there and give you everything he had, throw five, six innings. You know, usually give up, you know, three, four runs, but he would at least give you a chance to stay in the game. Nobody could have predicted 
what he was going to do when he signed with Texas away from Boston. The Red Sox didn't show any signs of wanting to be able to wanting to re-sign him when his contract was up. So last year he goes to Texas and sets career records for ERA and strikeouts in his career, right? This year he picks up right where he left off, five and two-thirds innings last night. He gives up just one run, strikes out seven, throws 98 pitches in his season debut, picks up the W. Bullpen does a great job, and uh, they beat the Phillies two to one. Martin Perez, ladies and gentlemen, unbelievable. Kyle Schwarber, we all love uh, some Kyle Schwarber. Led the NL last year with 46 home runs. Yeah, went 0 for his first 12. Finally got a hit last night in the seventh inning of the second game, so he is off to a rough start. Um, Now the Phillies get to follow that up, a team that you should be able to handle, they think, in the Texas Rangers, right? They follow that up by having to go take on the New York Yankees. Taiwan Walker, who signed as a free agent uh, with the Phillies in December, will make his Phillies debut tonight against Nestor Cortez and the Yankees in Yankee Stadium. Good luck. That's all I got to say. Um, the Mets win yesterday. They beat the Marlins uh, final in that one, 5-1. Uh, to one, And it was the Major League debut uh, for uh, Kode Sengai, who came over from Japan, 30-year-old right-hander, signed a five-year, $75 million contract. Uh, had a rough first inning. Only allowed one run. But he gave up three hits and, and danced out of some trouble. Uh, but he ends up allowing just a one run uh, in five and a third innings. Averaged 97 miles an hour with his fastballs. His fastest one was 99. His big pitch is the forkball. They call it the ghost forkball. So he actually has a uh, uh, an image of a ghost and a pitchfork on his glove, which is pretty funny. Uh, but he struck out eight, and it tied – for the fourth most by a Japanese pitcher in his major league debut. Uh, he had threw 88 pitches in the game, struck out Jazz Chisholm to lead off the sixth to, to finish the game. Tommy Pham, uh, big game for the Mets, had three hits, three runs batted in. The guy that pay, played for the Red Sox last year came over late in the season, uh, and he is off to a good start with the Mets. Um, so they end up beating the Miami Marlins yesterday by a final of 5-1, to one, and Mets fans can breathe a little sigh of relief after all the money they spent. They take three out of four uh, in the opening series against the Miami Marlins. The Mets will now start the opener of a three-game series at Milwaukee tonight, uh, and uh, the Brewers will send Freddie Peralta out to go against Carlos Carrasco. Uh, the White Sox beat the Astros yesterday 6-3. They salvage a four-game split in that series, uh, perhaps a bit of a surprise to a lot of people. But uh, Mike Clevenger, five shutout innings. Of course, Clevenger, the guy that is uh, in a little bit of hot water with fans and uh, big controversy when uh, there was some talk about uh, some domestic abuse allegations, but he was not suspended by Major League Baseball. Uh, Struck out eight, walked three picks up his first win as a member of the Chicago White Sox. Luis Garcia takes the loss after giving up three runs and seven hits uh, in five innings. Uh, Yohan Moncada hit his second home run of the season in this one for the White Sox. So Houston off to a 2-2 two and two start. The Minnesota Twins sweep their series with the Kansas City Royals, winning yesterday 7-4. to four. Um, And it was Joey Gallo. Joey Gallo, who had a very forgettable season last year. 
Gallo with two home runs in this one, thro- drove in four. Uh, last year, between the Mets and the Los Angeles Dodgers, Joey Gallo hit 160. 19 homers, 47 runs batted in in 126 games, hit 160. Look, he's never been a guy that hits for a high average, right? He's like a 200 career hitter. But last year was as bad as it has ever been for Joey Gallo, leading many to wonder if he was out of gas, if his career was over. And uh, batting out of the seven hole yesterday, the two bombs, four runs batted in, and he helps lead the Minnesota Twins to the sweep over the Kansas City Royals. Uh, the San Diego Padres beat the Rockies 3-1. to one. They end up splitting that series with the Rockies, uh, the four-game series. But Xander Bogarts, as much as I, I told you it hurt my soul when I watched him play that first game in a Padres uh, uniform, homer twice, drove in five runs, on six hits and 13 at-bats in the first four games of the season. He's now homered in back-to-back games. And Xander Bogarts is making himself very much at home in San Diego. Seth Lugo, the story yesterday for San Diego. Seven innings, four hits and a run. Struck out seven, didn't walk anybody. Lugo, of course, a longtime New York Mets player. The Mets never quite knew what to do with him, whether to make him a starter, whether to make him a reliever. He gets to start for San Diego, picks up the win. Uh, Josh Hader his first save of the season for the Padres. The Dodgers lose yesterday um, to the Arizona Diamondbacks, 2-1. to one. Um, The Dodgers split the series with the Diamondbacks, and you'd have to say that is a little bit of an upset as well. Um, the news here, Noah Syndergaard pitched very well for the Dodgers yesterday, making his Dodger debut six innings, just one hit, I mean one run, excuse me, four hits, struck out six, didn't walk anybody. Uh, but Brewster Gratterall uh, blows the game, gives up a run on four hits uh, in the uh, ninth inning, and the Arizona Diamondbacks come back to win that one by a final of 2-1. to one. Um, The Boston Bruins, as before we get out of here, win their 60th game of the season yesterday. They become the fourth team in NHL history to win 60. They have to do it in overtime. They were without Patrice Bergeron, David Krejci, and Charlie McAvoy last night. Uh, but they still win the game. They beat St. Louis 4-3 to in a shootout. They eliminate uh, St. Louis from any playoff contention. The NHL record for wins, by the way, 62, which was accomplished by the Detroit Red Wings uh, many, many moons ago back in the 1995-96 season. The Bruins have five games left to tie that mark, three to break it. Uh, they have 125 points on the season and uh, now the only question is, who do they play in the first round of the playoffs? It looks like it's going to come down to one of three teams. The Islanders, Pittsburgh, and Florida are all within two points of each other. The Islanders and Pittsburgh currently hold the two wild card spots, but whichever one of those is the last wild card will get the Bruins in the first round of the playoffs. That is going to do it for us here this morning. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Wake Up Call. Hey, it's Tony Orlando's birthday. Remember him? Tony Orlando and Dawn from back in the 1970s. He's 79 years old today, so why not a little Tony Orlando and Dawn on our way out? We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country.